while you're doing that, let me uh, let me just talk to you for for a moment. Um, I, I'm sure if I were to to go around the room this morning and and ask all of you, um, you could give me an example in your own in your own life and your own experiences of of just a, a blunder, right? Uh, a snafu, a decision that you've made that that you would just love to have back, right? Like, man, I decided to do that, and it just turned out really, really bad. Well, um, I, I want to encourage you a little bit this morning and, and let you know that the ones that I'm about to share with you, the blunders that I'm about to share with you, have to be way worse than yours. Uh, in 1961, Decca Records auditioned a small Liverpool band in their London studio. Eventually, however, they decided that the group wasn't sellable, saying that guitar music was on the way out, and that the Beatles, they didn't have a future in show business anyway. Right? That's a, that's a blunder. That's, that's bad. Um, what about this one? In 1999, a team of Lockheed Martin engineers used the English system of measurement, while the rest of the team used the metric system for a Mars uh, orbiter, a satellite that they put in space. One of my college professors actually worked on this, this project. Well, someone forgot to convert the units of measurement from English to standard, and uh, the orbiter crashed in space, and it cost NASA only $125 million, right? Somebody probably lost their job over that one, right? Uh, a blunder, a mess up. This, though, this has to be my, my all-time favorite. While working on the movie Star Wars, creator George Lucas struggled to find a studio that would take on the film. Finally, 20th Century Fox agreed, but they had one stipulation. One stipulation. Lucas had to waive his right to take a salary for directing the film in exchange for this. So no salary, but this is what he gets. He gets all rights to future sequels and 40% of the box office gross proceeds and the licensing rights for all of the merchandise for all the films. No, no salary, but he gets all of that, all right? Um, so guess what he got? Well, let me back up. So Fox had no idea that there were going to be five sequels to the first Star Wars. The, this deal was just for the first movie. He had no idea there were going to be five sequels. When it was all said and done, when all six movies were done, Lucas had made somewhere, somewhere about $15 billion, with a B, dollars. That's billion and to make matters worse, to add insult to injury, now Disney owns the franchise, uh, Lucasfilms or, or whatever it's called. And there's no telling how many more spinoffs and sequels they're going to make. And it's all going to benefit and all going to profit Lucas because guess in what company he's a major stockholder? Disney, that's right. Uh, Lucas is going to be a trillionaire before all this is said and done. And, and we can say without a doubt that Fox botched that one. Like, that's a, that's a huge blunder, right? Well, uh, these blunders uh, ultimately only cost uh, the people in these stories uh, money. Uh, maybe that guy at NASA lost his job. I don't know. Uh, but ultimately, just, just money. Now, granted, it's probably more money than I or you will ever see. $15 billion is a lot of money. Uh, but it's just money. But here in Acts this morning, as Peter preaches to the crowd in Jerusalem, he wants his hearers to understand that they have made a colossal mistake, an error so grave that the future of their very souls is at stake. A lot more on the line than just money this morning for this crowd in Jerusalem. Now, what I want to do this morning is I want to I walk through our text 
And I want to point out three big ideas that, that I think help us understand what, what Luke, what Peter, and ultimately Luke, who, who recorded these events, wants us to see. Peter this morning in his sermon is saying to us that all of this that's been going on at Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, it is proof, it is vindication that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Let me say that again. The coming of the Holy Spirit here in Luke, as Peter describes it to this crowd, is proof that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Right? Now, the first thing that, that I want us to see underneath that big idea, Jesus is both Lord and Christ, is, is this. This crowd, they, they got it all wrong. They, they totally missed it. You see, uh, last week, Ted showed us that the coming of the Holy Spirit signaled uh, a significant moment in human history. And in God's plan of salvation, it was the coming of the Spirit that marked the birth of the church and when God's people would, were finally empowered to be His witnesses. You know, the title of our, our series is Be My Witnesses. God's people were finally empowered to be His witnesses to the ends of the earth. And as Ted showed us, this event had long been promised by God. The, the prophet Joel had written hundreds of years earlier saying that this was going to happen. But the Jewish people, they just missed it. It was right there in their scriptures, in the Old Testament, right there in plain sight. And they just missed it. Instead of recognizing this moment in history as a sign of the last days and that their promised Redeemer had come They all thought that all of Jesus' followers going around uh, preaching in different languages, they thought they were all drunk. They thought they had too much wine the last, last night or whatever. But that wasn't the case. The people in the crowd, and as we'll see, the whole world had gotten it all wrong. They had missed the significance of this day, and most importantly, they had missed the significance of the one this day pointed to. In fact, in fact, the people in this crowd. They were guilty of killing that man. That's what Peter's going to tell us this morning. The Spirit of God had come upon his people, and it was proof. It was proof that all of Israel had made a terrible, a terrible mistake. Jesus, the one they crucified, was indeed their Lord Christ. Now, Peter says to the crowd in verse 22, I'll let you follow along with me. You should be able to see it up on the screen as well. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Peter is speaking to a crowd of people who all share the same religion. That's important. They're all Jewish. Uh, um, they're all Jewish. And all of these people, uh, for the most part, um, would have lived there in Jerusalem. Or they, they could have been really from anywhere in the known world. People had traveled from all over the place into the city for Pentecost. All right? um, they were there to celebrate this this festival. And so, so Peter has this opportunity, as we've seen, and he's, he's preaching, and he wants the people to understand that they've made a terrible mistake. He goes on in verse 22. Jesus of Nazareth, this is Peter speaking, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves no, this is, this is what Peter's saying here. He's saying, regardless of whether or not they lived in Jerusalem, remember I told you there were a lot of people from out of town, there were some people who lived there, 
all those in attendance that day would have known who Jesus was, okay? Jesus' life and ministry had made waves throughout the world, all right? This wasn't something that just happened in in backwoods uh, Jerusalem. Everybody knew about this. Um, This radical Jewish teacher who was saying all of these radical things had made a name for himself. And, and Jesus is saying that this, this man, or Peter's saying this man, Jesus, has been attested or affirmed or validated, the way we might say it, by God through his mighty word. Remember uh, all those miracles in the Gospels? Uh, all those uh, mighty works that Jesus did, the whole walking on water thing, the raising people from the dead? Peter is saying to this crowd this morning, Hey guys, remember all of that stuff? That was God working through Jesus saying to you, pay attention, listen up. He's the one, he's the rescuer that I promised you. Like I said, they, they missed it. They, they mistook Jesus for something else, for someone else. Peter continues in verse 23. He says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan And foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But Peter says, listen to what Peter's doing here. He's saying all of it, all of it, the fact that you missed it, the fact that you killed Jesus, all of it was a part of God's plan. Peter's showing us this this tension here between the sovereignty of God and human uh, responsibility. He shows us that that God is in complete control over all things. All of this with Jesus' life, ministry, his death, burial, resurrection, and his ascension, all of that was a part of God's plan. All of it was a part of God's plan. God is in complete control, yet still, you and I, we're free. We're free to make choices for ourselves, and yet therefore responsible for those choices. So, is God responsible for killing Jesus this morning? Absolutely, yes. It was his definite plan and foreknowledge that set the whole thing into motion. But Peter and the crowd before him, they were guilty too. They were all guilty. The one they and their fathers and grandfathers and their grandfathers before them had been, had been waiting for. The culmination of their entire nation's hopes and dreams. The Messiah killed them. Crucified. Now they're they're all guilty. Now, if you're like me when you're reading this, you're thinking, but, but wait, but you just told us that that some of these people were from out of town. They knew who Jesus was, but couldn't have been there when he was crucified. And and really, wasn't it the Jewish officials, right? I mean, it was the Jewish religious leaders and the, the Roman officials who who crucified Jesus. They're the ones that's responsible, not Not everyone in the crowd. Well, as we're going to see a little later, this crowd comes to the very same conclusion at the end that Peter does, which is that all of them, regardless of whether they were there or not, they're all guilty. They're all guilty of the death of Jesus. But Peter continues, and he says that death could not hold Jesus. Even though he was crucified and killed, death could not hold him. He says in in verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the, the pangs of death. 
because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter, he mixes his metaphors here, right? He, he talks about the, the pangs, or we, we, we would say pains, the pains of death. Now, now usually, uh, this is talked about in, um, in regards to, to labor, to giving birth, right? But like I said, Peter uh, mixes his metaphors. Now, if you were to ask my wife about this, she would be completely okay with Peter mixing these metaphors. Pains of death, pains of labor, they're all about the same in her brain. Uh, when, my, when my son was born, he was 10 pounds, 6 ounces. He was a big boy. And, um, and, and I, need to tell you, I need to tell you on the front end of this story that you're going to have to cut me a little slack because I was just a big dummy and didn't know any better. Okay, so caveat made, cut me some slack. Uh, she woke me up about 4 a.m. Um, and said, hey, babe, I, I think my water broke. Now, I've watched a lot of TV, and I know that when the water breaks, people go to the hospital, and they, I wasn't thinking that way. It was 4 o'clock in the morning. And up until this point, she had not had a contraction that we knew of. Not even the, the, the Braxton Hicks, the fake one, right? Nothing. Well, uh, I say to her, babe, you know, you hadn't had a contraction yet. I think it's okay. Just, I'm going to go back to bed. Wake me up. Wake me up if you have a contraction. And she told me, she said, babe, listen, I really think you should at least call the, call the hospital. Okay, whatever. So I picked up the phone, and I, and I called the hospital, and I talked to the nurses, and I told them everything that was going on. And they said, listen, you know, we really don't think it's time. Uh, so why don't you tell your wife, go and get a shower, have some breakfast, and when you get a chance, come on into the hospital, we'll check you out. They didn't think anything was going on either, in my defense. Well, about that time, Julie doubles over with, I mean, a terrible contraction. So, you know, everything went out the window at that point. I grabbed the bag. I'm not going to be dumb anymore. We got in the car, and we take off down the road, and, and we get to this one point, and we got to stop at a red light. And I, I could, contraction hits, and she didn't want me to stop. And so she grabs my arm and digs the meat out on my arm with her fingernail right here, I guess is punishment for my stupidity. Um, we, we get to the hospital. Grant is coming. Mean, he's coming right now. Like, we can't wait. Uh, it was so fast that she couldn't have an epidural. So uh, she's got she's to have this baby on her own. We arrived at the hospital at 5 a.m. Grant's in a hurry. No meds. I'm bleeding. Nobody cares. And Grant's born at 7.50. Fast. Grant was on his way. He was coming. Nothing was stopping him. And Peter wants the crowd and us to see this morning that the grave had no more of a chance of holding on to Jesus than a, a pregnant woman in labor has it, keeping her baby inside of her. Jesus was going to come back to life. God had sovereignly presided over Jesus' crucifixion. And when the time came, God commanded the grave to release him. And the grave released him. Jesus got up. He walked out. Then, then Peter turns. He turns again to the Old Testament. Now, remember I told you he did this earlier with Joel to prove, hey, what's going on here? Prophesied a long time ago. Well, he's kind of going to do the same thing here. Peter, Peter is going to quote Psalm 16, 8 through 11. Now, we're not, we're not going to read it this morning. I encourage you to take the time to read it maybe afterwards in your own personal study. But he quotes this psalm, Psalm 16, 8 through 11, written by, by King David. Now, this is what you need to know about this psalm. Okay? David is talking about a resurrection. He's talking about a resurrection. And the second thing you need to know is this psalm confused the mess out of Jewish scholars. They couldn't figure it out. They could not figure out, and these guys are really smart, by the way. When it comes to the Old Testament, these guys are really smart. 
They could not figure out what David was talking about. Was he talking about himself, his resurrection, or was he talking about someone else's? Yet what's, what's interesting and kind of ironic is that all throughout the Gospels, Jesus constantly refers to this psalm as talking about himself, talking about him, the, the Messiah. And so Peter, in full agreement with Jesus, says to the crowd in verse 29 about this psalm, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch, David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God raised up. That, we are all witnesses. Peter was saying, let me, let me put this in, in Blue Ridge for you, because I, I had to do this for myself. Peter's saying, look y'all, David's dead. Right? David is dead, and if you need proof, we can arrange a little Holy Land tour, and we can all go see David's tomb. Like You can actually go do that today. You can go see David's grave. David wasn't talking about himself, Peter's saying. He knew that God had promised that one of his descendants, one of David's descendants, would be king forever. And he was talking about the Christ, the Messiah. David didn't know his name. He didn't know his name would be Jesus. But he was talking about Jesus. The one that God raised from the dead to which he says they were all witnesses. But God had done more than just resurrect Jesus. Just raise him from the dead. According to Peter, as Lord and Christ, God had exalted Jesus to his right hand. Peter says in verse 33, he says, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Once again, Peter's pointing back to another psalm by, by King David. This time it's Psalm 110.1. Peter, Peter quotes it there in verse 40, 34, where David speaks of ascension and exaltation, but he wasn't talking about himself. David's dead. He didn't ascend. David was referring to the Messiah. It was Jesus who had ascended. And all those years before, David didn't know his name. David was talking about him. As the ascended one, as the one who sits at God's, at God's side in heaven, Jesus sits in power and authority, dispensing all the benefits of salvation to God's people, including the Holy Spirit. It was Jesus who sent the Holy Spirit. Or we could say this a different way. That the Spirit was on earth, that the Spirit was, was on earth and had indwelt God's people, come upon God's people, meant, was proof, Jesus was in heaven by God's side, and that he was truly the Messiah. That the Spirit had come meant that Jesus was in heaven and was the Messiah. With this, Peter's argument is complete. This is, you know, mic drop kind of deal here. Uh, he says in verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. His miraculous works, his death, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his exaltation, all pointed to the glorious truth of God, which is 
those in the crowd, and so many people today miss. Jesus is both Lord and Christ. As Lord, he is equal to God in authority and power. God and Jesus share the, the same name, or really it's a title, Lord. Nobody else in the Bible shares that name with God other than Jesus. They are equal in authority and power. As Lord, he presides over salvation. As Christ or Messiah, he is the chosen one sent by God to be crucified by his own for their salvation. He is both Lord and Christ. Christ and Messiah are synonyms. Interchangeable. Okay. The second thing I want us to see this morning is this. The first was that they, they got Jesus wrong. They were all wrong about Jesus. The second is this. They were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. That's, that's what Luke says in verse 37. It was as if Peter had, had run them through with the, the sharpest of swords. Their hearts had been laid bare with conviction. And to help us kind of understand this, understand what's going on in the, the hearts and minds of the people, uh, I, I found something that, that Tim Keller says, Pastor uh, Tim Keller says that, that I think is just incredibly helpful. He, he points out two reasons why the crowd was convicted by Peter's words. The first is this. They finally understood, the crowd finally understood that they'd been wrong about Jesus. During the, the first century, there were lots of ideas about who Jesus was. More importantly, there were lots of things that people wanted him to be. Right? A lot of people wanted Jesus to be a prophet. They, they wanted him to be a prophet like in the Old Testament who would come and call God's people back to faithfulness. Uh, other people wanted Jesus to be a Messiah or a Christ, but they were really specific about it. They wanted a political Messiah or Christ. They, they wanted Jesus to overthrow the Romans and establish a new Jewish nation that would be free from oppression. And still, even some, they just thought Jesus was a crazy man. They thought he was a fraud, a lunatic, and all this stuff he'd been saying about God, well, he just made it up. Crazy man. But Jesus wasn't any of that. And in fact, he rejected any notion that he was. The simple truth that Jesus put forth over and over again in the Gospels is that he was God in the flesh, the Messiah, Sent to save God's people from their, from their sins. Uh, in, in one of Keller's books called The, the Reason for God, he records a, a fascinating interview between a, a reporter and the leader of the band U2, lead singer Bono. I want to I share it with you this morning. Bono says, look, at, look, the secular response to the Christ story always goes something like this. He was a great prophet. Obviously a very interesting guy, had a lot to say along the lines of other great prophets, be they Elijah, Muhammad, Buddha, or Confucius. But actually, Bono says, Christ doesn't allow you that. He doesn't let you off that hook. Christ says, no, I'm not saying I'm a teacher. Don't call me a teacher. I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that, I, that I'm a prophet either. I am God in the flesh. And, and people say, no, 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 please, please just be a prophet, Jesus. Just, just be a prophet, a prophet we can take. You're a bit eccentric, but we've had John the Baptist eating locusts and wild honey. We, we can handle that. But don't mention the M word. 
Messiah. Because you know we're going to have to crucify you if you say that. Bono says, and, and he goes, Jesus goes, no, no, I actually am the Messiah. Bono says at this point, everyone starts, starts staring at their shoes. He says, oh my gosh, he is going to keep saying this. So what you're left with is either Christ was who he said he was, the Messiah, or a complete nutcase, Bono says. He says, I mean, we're talking nutcase on the level of Charles Manson. I'm not joking here. The idea that the entire course of civilization for over half of the globe could have its fate changed and turned upside down by a nutcase? Bono says, for me, that's a little far-fetched. You see, what Bono understood, what this crowd had finally come to understood, is that, you know what? It doesn't really matter who we want Jesus to be. It doesn't really matter. What matters is, can we accept him for who he is? The crowd knew that Jesus was dead. They knew he was dead, just like King David. But they also knew that, unlike David, Jesus' tomb was empty. He wasn't in there anymore. And they could no longer ignore the obvious truth. Jesus was alive. You see, this is the pivotal question of Christianity. It always has been. It always will be. Is Jesus really alive? Because if he is, that changes everything. And the crowd that day came to believe, yes, he is. He is alive. They finally humbled themselves enough to accept Jesus, not for who who they wanted him to be, for who he is, God in the flesh, their Lord Christ. So let me ask you, we have to ask ourselves, who do we want Jesus to be? Who do you want Jesus to be? Let's be honest with ourselves. Do you, do you want Jesus just to be a nice guy? You know, super encouraging all the time. Tell you what a great person you are, how you always do a good job. Is that, is that the way you think of Jesus? Is that who you want him to be? Or maybe, maybe you just want Jesus to be a genie in a bottle, right? Who's always there, you can pray to him, and he'll grant you your three wishes, right? And you're done. Well, Jesus is he's none of these things, and he's none of the things that they thought he was. But he will be your Lord and Christ. He will deal with your sin as only he can, and he will make you to grow in his likeness. He will empower you with his Holy Spirit. And commission you to be his witnesses. To testify to who he is. And he will give you the same resurrection power that raised him from the dead. This is who he is. This is what he offers. The question is, is will we accept him? Second thing that Keller says is they, they finally understood that they were responsible for Jesus' death. But how can this be? I had to ask myself that question as I was studying this text. How can this be? There were people in the crowd who lived in Jerusalem. Many of them probably witnessed Jesus' death. But some of the people, like I said, they're from out of town. Hey man, we just showed up for the party. We showed up for Pentecost. Why are you accusing me of killing this man? Besides, it was the Jewish leaders. It was the Roman officials. They killed Jesus. They crucified him, Right? Peter says to the crowd, all guilty, all of you. And by all, Peter most certainly means himself. Remember, he betrayed Jesus. He denied him three times. 
He means the crowd, everyone there that day, they were all guilty. He means all of us and the entire world. We are all guilty of the blood of Jesus. Even those of us who have not been born yet, we're all guilty. Jesus' blood is upon our hands. This is, what, this is part of what Peter's saying in verse 39. Listen to him. He says, for the promise, the promise of the gospel, salvation and, and resurrection, the promise is for you, you in the crowd, and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. We are all guilty. Our guilt, the guilt for killing Jesus is global. Our sin makes us all guilty of Jesus' death. And yet this is the beautiful part. Jesus' death is the remedy for all who are guilty. This, this realization cut the crowd to the heart. Jesus' death, it wasn't just a historical event anymore. It was personal. So let me ask you, what is Jesus' death to you? Just an event in history? Or is it personal? Is it personal for you this morning? Or we could ask it the way that Luke describes the crowd. Have you been cut to the heart by the truth that you are responsible for killing Jesus? Here's some ways that, that you can think about that as you ponder that in your mind. Do, do you take your own sin seriously? Is sin to you just breaking God's rules? Or do you see it as breaking God's heart? Because that's the level at which it cost God. Your sin is so bad. My sin is so bad that it, it broke his heart. And the only way to fix it is that his only son would have to die. Do you see every act of disobedience to God as one more reason Jesus had to die? Every time you put your own needs above others, every time you've loved yourself more than God, every time you've lied, cheated, stolen, and for every time you've broken God's heart by disobeying Him, it was just another swing of the hammer as it hit the nails into Jesus' wrists and into His feet. All responsible. We, we sing about this in one of the hymns here at the church at Blue Ridge. Listen to this. I'm not going to sing. Um, Behold the man upon the cross. My sin upon his shoulder. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice. Call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there. Until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me home. No better place. All guilty of the death of Jesus. The third thing that I want us to see under this umbrella of um, the Holy Spirit's coming, vindicates Jesus as Lord in Christ, is that I want us to see what the crowd did as they're realizing this. The third thing I want us to see this morning is what they did. The crowd had been humbled. Their sin had crucified Jesus and they wanted confidence. The confidence I just talked about in that song, that their salvation was finished. They just didn't know how to get it. They didn't know how. They were cut to the heart, but didn't know what to do. So they asked Peter and the other apostles. They said, brothers, what shall we do? And this is what Peter told them, and this is what they did. 
The first thing they did is they, they submitted. Their call to the apostles for help was their submission to the truth of God as proclaimed by Peter. They were saying, okay, Peter, you outed us. You, you outed us. We're not hiding anymore. We messed up. We got a bunch of things wrong. But please don't leave us in this mess. Don't, don't leave us here. God won't, he won't overlook this one. We killed his son, our savior. Tell us how to make this right. Tell us what we need to do. They submitted. Second thing they did is they repented. Peter commanded them to repent or change their minds. And that's exactly what they did. They had gotten Jesus wrong. He was God. He was their promised Messiah. They killed him. But now he was alive and offering them a second chance. Forgiveness. And this crowd, they abandoned their old way of thinking. They embraced the truth that Jesus was Lord in Christ and committed to allowing him to completely rearrange, rearrange their lives around him. And guess what? God forgave them. God forgave them right there on the spot. The third thing that they did, they were baptized. The crowd had humbly submitted to the truth and taken God's offer of forgiveness through Jesus by changing their minds about him or repenting. And now they followed Jesus in obedience by being baptized. Now, the water that day, there was nothing special about it, right? It didn't save them. It didn't cleanse them from their sins. It was just a, a symbol, a symbolic act of obedience. The people in that crowd, and I don't want you to underestimate this, because this is huge for the people in that crowd. They were, in effect, saying that day, we're no longer Jews. If there were Romans there, we're no longer Romans. When they were dipped into the water and raised back up, they were proclaiming to the entire world, that they were Christians, that they belonged to Jesus. It's part of the significance of baptism. It's a symbolic act of obedience, a declaration of who our Lord in Christ is. And everyone knew it afterwards. Luke says in verse 40, with many other words, he, Peter, bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Isn't incredible? Peter preaches, the spirit works, and 3,000 people get saved. Incredible. So let me ask you, how will you respond to the truth of God's word this week? What will you do now that you know? Sorry, you're all on the hook now. What will you do now that you know that Jesus is Lord and Christ? In just a moment, Micah and the guys, they're going to come back up. And, and we're going to sing. And, and this is the time of our service that we set aside for you to respond uh, to what God is doing in your heart as a result of the teaching of his word. And I, I don't want you to, to miss this opportunity this morning. So here's a, here's a couple of ways that I think you you can respond this morning. And, and this, is not, this is not an exhaustive list. If you're a Christian, maybe you want to use this time as we sing to, to pray and, and confess some things to God. Maybe, maybe there's sin in your life you've been ignoring and not taking seriously. I know that I have to do this from time to time. Sometimes I just, I just let sin go on as it is. I don't deal with it. But, but listen, we cannot be effective witnesses for Jesus, if we are not continually dealing with our sin. 
Holiness is of the utmost importance to Christ, to our God. Maybe this morning you've been treating Jesus as some of the things we talked about, right? Being a bottle. Someone who's just super encouraging and tells you you're a good, good guy, good lady all the time. Maybe, maybe that's you. Maybe this morning you'd like to confess this to God and ask Him to do what He did to the crowd and to change your mind and to remind you that, no, Jesus is your Lord and your Christ. He's the Messiah who died for your sins. But, but maybe this morning you've been cut to the heart for the very first time. Maybe this is the very first time and Peter's sermon has just laid you bare. And you, like the crowd, you just want to know what to do, right? Like, what do I do? I get it. I get it. What do I do? Well, this is what you do. You do the same thing that this crowd did. Humbly submit to the truth of God's word that you're guilty of sin and killing Jesus. Commit to not thinking and living that way anymore. And trust that Jesus will forgive you. If you want, you can, you can even say what I just said in your own words in a prayer to God. You could, just, you could pray that as we sing. And if you do that, after we'll baptize you. We got, a, we got a tub down there. We'll fill it with water and we'll baptize you. You can be baptized as a Christian if you will repent and believe today. If you're scared, man, grab your neighbor. You might have to reach a long way. I think everybody's on vacation this morning. Grab your, grab your neighbor and, and say, hey, help me. Help me understand. If you want to talk to me, I would love to talk to you about salvation, baptism, any of the things I've talked about, I'm going to be on the other side of that door at those tables out there after the service, sitting down. Come talk to me. I would love to tell you more. Whatever the case this morning, do not miss the opportunity. Be like this crowd. Take initiative and respond to the kingdom of God. Let me pray for us. King Jesus, you, you are Lord and Christ. And I pray that you would forgive us for treating you and thinking you of as anything less. You are our Savior and our God. And I ask this morning that by the power of your Spirit that you would work in the minds and hearts of the people that are here. I pray that if there is one here who, who does not know you, who has never been cut to the heart, that you would do that this morning. You would convict them of the truth that we are all guilty of Jesus' death, of your death, and we need your forgiveness to save us. Father, work in our hearts and in our minds and send us out as witnesses, as witnesses who believe in our hearts and in our minds that Jesus is Lord and Christ and who are willing to give our lives away so that the entire world hears this wonderful truth. Father, would you do all of this for the fame of your name? In Jesus' name I pray.